This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips, and this is Rear Vision. After the recent floods and the bushfires of 2019, it's not surprising that the climate emergency is an issue in the current federal election campaign. The convener of the Climate 200 movement that's backing independent candidates at the next federal election says the financial support they're receiving comes with no strings attached. Climate 200 has so far amassed a war chest of $7 million to back independents, contesting the Liberal-held seats of Wentworth, North Sydney, McKellar, Goldstein and Kuyong. These candidates are not working in cahoots. These candidates speak for themselves. They are truly independent. The Climate 200 independents, along with candidates supported by voices groups, are arguing for a better approach to managing climate change. But what about the political party that's been urging action on environmental threat for decades? The Greens, Australia's third largest political party by vote. In this rear vision, we'll look at the highs and lows for the Australian Greens and how this election, with a raft of well-funded independents, might play out for them. The roots of the Greens lie in social activism of the 1960s and 70s, community campaigns, sometimes around single issues, the fight to save the Little Desert in Victoria and the Franklin River in Tasmania. In New South Wales, the Greens would develop a more radical social agenda, drawing from the Union Green bands that saved Sydney's historic centre, the Rocks. Another strand came from the peace movement, galvanised by the Vietnam War and the threat of nuclear weapons. The activists who'd be elected first to state and then federal parliaments were not the kind of career politicians we often see today. Bob Brown is obviously one of the most famous of them. He was uh, a doctor and practising in Tasmania. I'm Frank Bongiorno and I'm a professor of history at the Australian National University. In a lot of ways, he came to issues around conservation and the environment through a love of of the bush, through bushwalking. He had an interest in the whole question of whether the Tasmanian tiger had survived, you know, um, species believed to have become extinct in the 1930s. But yeah, very much a love of, of the bush. And he was one of the founders of the Tasmanian Wilderness Society in 1976, which really fed into the modern Greens movement. His successor as federal leader, Christine Milne, was a school teacher, but also the daughter of uh, farmers. And she really became involved in the Greens movement in the first instance through the Franklin issue, which of course had also been central to, to Bob Brown's career. But another issue of the late 80s, which was the building of a pulp mill at Wesley Vale in, in Tasmania. And that in many ways became her great her great issue in the later 1980s. And in many ways, they're a doctor, a teacher, very typical, I think, of the kinds of people who were attracted to the environmental movement and then eventually to the Greens party that arose out of it. In the 1980s, both Brown and Milne would be elected to state parliament in Tasmania. But the first person to sit as a Green in the federal parliament, in the Senate, was elected unexpectedly and from a different party. The first Green senator actually was Joe Valentine from WA. I'm Paddy Manning, a freelance investigative journalist and author of Inside the Greens, The Origins and Future of the Party, the People and the Politics. And she was a Quaker and a peace activist who was elected sort of by chance, running alongside Peter Garrett, who was the star candidate for a newly formed party in 1984 called the 
Nuclear Disarmament Party. And that party had formed at a meeting in Canberra after the ALP under Bob Hawke welched on a promise about the three mines policy. And at this time, you got to remember, you know, we've got a kind of second Cold War going with Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher in power and real fears about deployment of nuclear war again. And the Nuclear Disarmament Party was formed almost overnight. And they expected that Peter Garrett, the Midnight Oil singer, of course, would get elected in New South Wales. As it turned out, he wasn't. But Joe Valentine, who had been on the WA ticket, did get up. And then what happened, (laughs) you know, she gets into the Senate and then finds that there was a, a whole lot of turmoil because she wasn't supposed to get elected. There was a whole lot of turmoil about who was who would dictate her agenda. And party members from around the country kind of descended on her office to tell her what her policies were going to be, and she rejected it. Joe Valentine left the Nuclear Disarmament Party and ultimately sat as a West Australian Green in the Senate. The world's first political parties to campaign on a predominantly environmental platform were the United Tasmania Group, led by an academic biologist, Dr Richard Jones, and the Value Party of New Zealand, both of which contested elections in 1972. The same kind of thing was happening in Europe. The Green Party in Germany, which would go on to become the most successful politically, grew out of a similar mix of activism over environmental and social issues, and especially opposition to nuclear power. Dr Jean Franklin is a political scientist from Ball State University in Indiana. Some were environmentalists, there were conservatives even that were in the Greens at the early point. And there were people that were not really even ideological, they were concerned with developmental projects. And there was an overreaching anxiety about nuclear power. And then that also latched up with the peace movement. It was a very, you could think, conglomerate of people that were concerned with environmental values from left to right at the outset. It changes, but that's the way it started. But they were the the 68 generation people, the student radicals. There were some of those. There were some people who were just concerned about not having enough parks or kindergartens. There were were people that were quite uh, local in their concerns. Here in Australia in the 1970s, people were aware that the green political movement was spreading, especially in Europe. This sense of internationalism would lead to the creation of a network of political parties and movements. Margaret Blakers is one of the founders of the Victorian Greens. The Global Greens, organised by Blakers, held its first meeting in Canberra in 2001. From the early 1970s, when Green parties first began to establish themselves in various countries around the world, but particularly in Europe, there were occasions, I mean, you have to remember the technology, we didn't have Zoom or any of the easy ways that we now have to communicate and to be in touch with each other. But because of this, generally speaking, international outlook that Green parties have, They were coming together in various forums over the 20 years or so until 1992 in the Earth Summit at Rio. There was a gathering of Greens and Green parties on that occasion. We also had the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and the formation of Green parties in in Eastern Europe then for the first time and other places, Central Asia, for example, Mongolia that followed the opening up of um, more democratic 
possibilities. As the 1990s went on and 2000 loomed as the change of the millennium, the Greens in Australia were always particularly interested in looking outwards to find out what was happening with Green parties elsewhere around the world. And Bob Brown travelled to Europe in the 1990s. Petra Kelly visited Australia in the 1980s. So there were those sorts of connections and we were aware that there were Green parties in many countries, not just in Europe, but in many countries around the world. So I think it was in about 19. 97, we decided that to bring those two things together, the growing number of Green parties and the fact of the millennium changing, to mark that by holding a conference and inviting Green parties from all around the world to come to Canberra in 2001. So we wound up with over 70 countries being represented, most of them having some form of a Green party, and 800 people at a a really amazing conference in Canberra over Easter in 2001. Today there are Green parties in almost 90 countries, most belonging to Global Greens. You're listening to Radio National's Rear Vision with Kerry Phillips. You can always find us on the ABC Listen app. As Australia's federal election campaign unfolds, and we hear candidates set out their plans for addressing the climate crisis, we're looking at the history of a party that grew out of a concern for the environment, the Australian Greens. In 1992, 20 years after Greens first contested state seats, a federal party, the Australian Greens, was established. The decision to opt for a constitution and full party status has been some time in coming. In the decade since Bob Brown became its first fully-fledged politician, the Green Movement has established a core of support statewide of around 15%. We're a presence in Tasmanian political processes forever and we're the, moreover, the growing and vigorous end of politics in Tasmania. In line with Green parties now in three other states, the Tasmanian branch will soon be part of a national entity running candidates at all three levels of government. Registered as the Greens, the party is confident it can exploit membership dissatisfaction with both mainstream political groups. The Greens were kind of set up as an anti-party party. They wanted to do politics differently. They wanted to make decisions by consensus rather than by getting the numbers together and embracing factionalism as as the other major parties had done. And and it kind of owes something to the Quaker influence, the non-violent direct action, which was a, a mark of civil rights and peace movements around the world. But it also created problems for the party because you could have a small group of objectors who would be able to delay decision-making at a party level forever. One of the key issues was prescription. Could you be a member of the Greens and another party, for example, a socialist party? And then another issue that really came up and was a vexing kind of issue for the Greens in the early years was whether you could have a conscience vote. Would an MP, if elected, be able to vote according to their conscience on certain issues or would they be bound by party policy the way, for example, the Labor Party is? And so the Greens really spent the best part of a decade trying to make sure that Greens Party candidates, and this was a position that Bob Brown and Christine Milne had very strongly, that they should be able to vote according to their conscience. 
And then if the party didn't like them, they could deselect them. And that you could not be a member of any other party. And so after those issues were resolved and there was plenty of argy-bargy over the decade between sort of 84 and 92, but when those issues were finally resolved, the Australian Greens came together on the 30th of August 1992. Despite the Green commitment, the state parties, which continued as separate entities, were quite different from each other. Well, I think that structure of the party was also very much, and, and the problems that emerged from it, was also very much a reflection of the very different kinds of agendas and preoccupations of of different Greens. I mean, in New South Wales, there'd been a close alignment, in fact, with socialist and indeed communist politics. And, and I mean, the most spectacular example of that was really the Green bands of the period between about 1971 to 74, essentially a campaign run by the communist-led Builders Labourers Federation and a number of residence groups to save various parts of the natural and built environment in Sydney. And and so I think that that alignment of conservation and environmentalism with broader left-wing socialist and communist politics was quite strong in New South Wales. I mean, the first Greens party was registered by a man named Tony Harris, a, a school teacher in, in 1985. And he had been active in, in socialist politics. Many of those who came into the Greens had had a period on the left of the Labor Party in New South Wales. So the New South Wales situation was obviously very different from the situation in Tasmania, where the concerns had been very much with the preservation of wilderness, with countering the attempts to dam Lake Pedder in the 1970s and then the Franklin in, in the 1980s. It was a very different style of politics that didn't really have the close alignment with socialism and, and left-wing politics in quite the same way. So you, you had very different kinds of scenarios in, in different places. Obviously, in Western Australia, there was a close link with the anti-nuclear movement. So a lot of those kinds of tensions were still evident, in fact, you know, decades after the foundation of the party as a national party in the early 1990s? Well, I think there is a division about capitalism. There's no doubt about that. The Greens have four pillars, and this again is borrowed from the German Greens. The Greens, four pillars of the Greens are environmental sustainability, social justice, grassroots democracy, and peace and disarmament. Those are the four. And the New South Wales Greens say that a commitment to social justice has always been a fundamental plank of the party. And uh, you won't find any argument on that score anywhere. There is an argument as to how far you go in the support of the existing capitalist system in Australia versus something that's closer to socialism. And that turns on debates about public ownership and privatisation, turns on debates about tax And it turns on debates about when do you prioritise environment and when do you prioritise social justice? And as the stakes rise, as the Greens succeed in getting elected, the arguments in some ways become more important. So you do get an upsurge in membership and you get an increasing representation of the Greens through the 90s and into the, especially into the early 2000s. And that's when these arguments start to really not damage the party, but they become a feature of the internal politics of the party. During the 1990s, the Greens were a marginal force in federal parliament. The Democrats were the much stronger third party. But the Greens' fortunes were about to change. 
Bob Brown was elected to the Senate in 1998 and there was a steady rise in support for the Greens in the early 2000s as the Democrats faded away. At the 2007 election, Labor's Kevin Rudd became Prime Minister and Brendan Nelson, briefly the leader of the opposition, before being challenged by Malcolm Turnbull less than a year later. Yeah, so during the period of the Rudd government, the Greens effectively held the balance of power in the Senate and that was consequential because one of the key issues that the Rudd government had to deal with was the creation of a carbon market of an emissions trading scheme. And that became you know, one of the key issues in those years. It became an issue of contention between Labor and the Greens. In general, the Greens were dissatisfied with the legislation or the bills that were put to the Senate. The Liberal or the coalition parties were also, of course, a player during that period and there was negotiations between the Labor Party and the coalition under Malcolm Turnbull and a distinct possibility of an agreement between Labor and the coalition in the Senate that would have seen, obviously, a bill that was unsatisfactory from the Greens' point of view passed. And, and in the end, of course, as we know, the Turnbull's leadership was really destroyed over this very issue by Tony Abbott in the end, and no legislation would be passed during the Rudd period. And to this day, you know, that there's a lot of blame that's directed uh, from the Labor Party and, and, and Labor Party people in general towards the Greens over that particular issue. Ultimately, the Greens decided to vote with the opposition, now led by Tony Abbott, to bring down Kevin Rudd's carbon emissions reduction scheme. It was a controversial decision. Just to point out, by this time, Christine Milner's in Parliament and is handling the climate change portfolio. She took responsibility for that decision and went on to become the leader after Bob. Christine's view was that the first proposal of the carbon pollution reduction scheme, locked in failure. She had legal advice to that effect and that, in fact, the targets were too low, the amount of compensation to coal-fired generators and other trade-exposed industries was too high and it was better to vote it down than legislate it. Now, that's a huge judgment call that was made at the time. It was made because the Greens were completely sidelined by Labor. So Kevin Rudd as Prime Minister and Penny Wong as climate change minister, were determined to negotiate with the Turnbull opposition and try and achieve bipartisanship rather than negotiate with the Greens. They only turned around to the Greens right at the end of the process once Tony Abbott took over the leadership from Malcolm Turnbull. And it became clear that there would be no bipartisan agreement. And, you know, there has not been any prospect of bipartisan agreement on climate change really ever since. In the 2010 election, the Greens won nine Senate seats, giving them the deciding vote there. In the lower house, they joined with independents Andrew Wilkie, Rob Oakeshott and Tony Windsor and the new Greens MP Adam Bant to support the minority government of Julia Gillard. I and Wayne Swan signed on behalf of the Australian Labor Party an agreement with the Australian Greens. There'll be a climate change committee with the status and wherewithal of a cabinet committee, but it will be inclusive as it moves towards looking at the best way for this nation to tackle climate change, including a carbon price. 
the Greens signed an agreement with Gillard in, in 2010 and really the price of their cooperation was that there would be a revisiting of an emissions trading scheme, a carbon pollution reduction scheme, effectively the creation of a carbon market. The Greens weren't completely satisfied with what Labor was prepared to offer, but you know, it's worth remembering that before the 2010 election, and indeed as a part of the, the, the scenario that led to Rudd's downfall, the Labor Party had postponed any consideration of the creation of such a scheme at all. So in a sense, in effectively forcing Labor to return to legislating that very complex policy issue, the Greens had exercised a really significant influence using their balance of power in the Senate. It was clearly a period in which they exercised a really significant influence over public policy, although as it happened, of course, in an area of public policy that wouldn't hold. The Abbott government, when it came to office in, in 2013, fairly promptly repealed that legislation. You know, it clearly was a major period of, of influence for the Greens, where they were able to take advantage of the fact that this was a government that in fact lacked majorities in both the lower and the upper house. So it was potentially dependent for at least some purposes on a Greens vote in the lower house. But more seriously, of course, it was thoroughly dependent on Greens cooperation in a range of areas in the upper house. And in fact, you know, that Labor had a relatively stable agreement in the upper house helps to explain the very large amount of legislation that the Gillard government was able to pass during those years. I think it was over 500 pieces of legislation in the period of about three years, which in terms of volume is quite extraordinary. And, you know, the Greens obviously supported Labor on things like plain packaging of, of cigarette packets as a way of countering smoking. I mean, there, there were a whole range of issues that went through the parliament during that period. The relationship between Labor and the Greens has been fraught in modern Australia. There's a great deal of bitterness, not least because they compete for votes in the same seats, particularly in the inner cities. But in fact, there are pretty strong records of cooperation between Labor and the Greens in both federal and state politics. And in a lot of ways, the Gillard years stand as, as an example of that cooperation. At the 2013 election, won by Tony Abbott, the Greens' vote declined, but they won an extra Senate seat, bringing their total to 10. There are currently nine Greens senators. Adam Bant remains their sole representative in the lower house. The voting system itself is crucial to Greens' political success. In first-past-the-post contests, you just have to get the highest number of votes to win a seat. It's hard for a minor party to do that. But a small party can gain seats if the voting system reflects the proportion of votes it gets. So the Greens have done best in general where there's been proportional representation. That was one of the reasons why they were able to break through initially in the House of Assembly, the lower house of the Tasmanian Parliament, it has used a form of proportional representation since the early 20th century, the Hare-Clark system. And that gave the Greens an opportunity to gain seats. And the same is true of the Senate, where again, a proportional system allowed the Greens at their peak, I think, to have about 10 seats in, in the federal upper house. They have managed to break through 
in some lower house electorates dependent usually on preferential system that you know tends to allow voters you know who might vote first for Labor to direct their preferences to the Greens rather than to a coalition candidate, thereby getting a Green over the line. So Greens have managed to win a number of lower house seats in inner city areas, in Sydney, in Melbourne, in Brisbane, in in state elections, and of course, very occasionally in, in federal elections too. That is one possible field in which the Greens could continue to expand in the years ahead. But so far, they haven't managed to break through in inner Sydney, which is, is quite interesting. And that may have something to do with the fact that you have very strong candidates from the left faction of the Labor Party in the major inner city seats in Sydney, Tony Albanese in one of them, for instance, and Tanya Plibersek in another. But yeah, they've tended to do best where there's been a system of proportional representation. If we had, as New Zealand does, as as many countries in the world do, if we had proportional representation in more of our lower houses and in the, in the House of Representatives for the federal parliament, the Greens would be a significant presence there. And it's probably very unlikely that you'd have majority government on a regular basis. You'd have a, a scramble after every election to form minority governments. And the Greens would very likely likely, as in Germany, for instance, be players in minority governments, most likely minority governments with with Labor, but also potentially with other parties as well. Where does this leave the Greens this time round? Although well-funded independents campaigning for more action on climate change have attracted a lot of attention, most of them are running for seats in the House of Representatives, not the Senate, where the Greens have traditionally had the numbers to exert influence. What effect might these independents have on the Greens' vote this time round? Dr Stuart Jackson, a political scientist from the University of Sydney. The importance of particularly the Climate 200 independents is they're attracting a great number of people who are interested in climate change or concerned about climate change, who are concerned about quite a number of social issues around housing and the like, but also quite like our general economic system. They are the small L liberals. And so if they can find a candidate they like that is not fire-breathing conservatives or free marketeers, that may well be the place they can put a vote. The Greens don't necessarily represent that. They are oppositional. So it will affect the Green vote in the seats that they stand where they're likely to be drawing that small L liberal vote. The Climate 200 independents, their biggest impact will be in the House of Reps. Yes, it will affect the Greens' vote. It's highly likely to drive it down, so it appears the Greens are losing votes. They're not actually losing votes. Um, People are seeing a candidate who could potentially beat the Conservative MP there, or if not an incumbent, then, you know, they'll, they'll be able to take the seat if it's an open seat. So, yes, there will be have an effect. Bob Brown's original objective was that the Greens were not there to keep the bastards honest. They were there to replace the bastards. And so you have not seen in the 30 years since the Australian Greens were formed, Greens storming into the lower house. But this election could be different. In 2022, what you have is the prospect, a realistic prospect, that the Greens might hold the balance of power in their own right in the upper house. The cycle favours them this time. They only need to replicate their vote at the last election and they will have 12 senators. You also have realistic prospects at the lower house level in this election. So 
there are three seats at least that are genuinely chances for the Greens. Two in inner city Brisbane, Ryan and Griffith, and one in New South Wales, Richmond, which covers Byron Bay and the Northern Rivers up there that have just been devastated by the flood. So there are real prospects for the Greens. Paddy Manning, author of Inside the Greens. The other guests were Professor Frank Bongiorno from the Australian National University, Dr Stuart Jackson from the University of Sydney, Dr Jean Franklin from Ball State University, and Margaret Blakers, a key member of the Greens and long-time environmental activist. And if you're interested in the history of Australia's other smaller party, the Nationals, there's a link to a rear vision on the subject on our website. Emrys Cronin is the sound engineer for this rear vision. Bye from Kerry Phillips. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.